Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Matt Argusinger and Jason Moser. And from Motley Fool Deep Value, Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. We have got the latest earnings from Wall Street. We will dig into the battle for the living room with TV writer Andy Greenwald. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the market in general, as the recent volatility has subsided for the moment. All <laughs> eyes are on the Federal Reserve's two-day meeting which begins on Wednesday the 16th. And the big question, guys, is will the Fed raise interest rates? And Ron, I got to say, it's getting pretty heated out there. You've got some money managers and analysts saying they've got to raise rates, and others saying that would be a massive mistake. What do you think? Huh? Well, they, they look at three main things and like 75 other little things, right? <laughs> um, economic growth, measured by GDP, strength in the job market, measured by unemployment, and the inflation rate. I think economic growth is pretty good at 3.7%, unemployment pretty good at 5.1%, and inflation is actually lower than their 2% target, significantly lower, actually. So things are pretty good. The low inflation rate actually gives them some, buys them some time if they want it. And they might want it because of the market volatility you just discussed, what's going on over in China with the weakness um, in their economy. Things aren't necessarily perfectly rosy. So they can have some time if they need it, if I'm, you're asking me to bet, and you didn't, but I'm going to bet anyway, I say yep. no hike in September, hike in December. Oh, pushing it off. All right. Well, I, and, and the employment numbers are really, I mean, if you look at it, jobless claims have been under 300,000 almost every week this year. I mean, that that is the, usually the sign of a very robust economy. The unemployment rate itself is down to 5.1%. What I'm worried about is the Fed's going to make a move, not based on all the metrics that Ron just brought up, but because the market's been volatile, because right. we've got global stock markets have been falling down. You know, we know China's stock market is down 40%. That would be a mistake. I, I really, we don't want a Federal Reserve that's really reacting to movements in the stock market unless they're really fundamentally based in the economy. And I just don't see that. I, I think we are ready for a raise in interest rates to get back to some semblance of normalization. We've had zero rates for, gosh, is it eight years now? Forever. For nine time. years? <laughs> I mean, it just seems like forever. And I think we need to get back to it. And there are a lot of industries, by the way, that are really going to benefit from rising rates. Banks, Brokerages, insurance companies, companies that have kind of lots of float, lots of assets they can start monetizing. Yeah, I, think, I think Maddie's just spot on there, and that you you don't want a, a you don't want decisions being made on market volatility. I mean, we think back you know, it's just two weeks ago, and we did a lot of talking with a lot of folks out there, and a lot of the same question: Oh, what is this going to do now with the interest rates? Are they going to raise rates? Are they going to push it off? And and that's just exactly everybody. The perception is because of the market volatility, and, and yeah, maybe. Uh, it, it maybe it would be sort of a bold call to to raise rates in the face of market volatility like that. But let's look at the underlying data here and just sort of the health of the economy. I think there is enough, uh, you know, to be argued with employment rates, with economic growth, that you could start ratcheting rates up a little bit. It's not going to be like just one big fell swoop. It's going to be very incremental, slow. Uh, you know, it, it'll take a lot of time to kind of back to kind of get it back to where you know even a savings account you know, looks more attractive for the for the typical consumer. But like Maddie said, there will be you know. Benefactors there, there will be beneficiaries there. I mean, it's it's not a bad thing necessarily uh, that that they actually do bump those rates up. Final point from I think we have to just remember these are people, human beings on the Fed who are tough for the really face this uh, tough decision here, and they're worried about spooking the markets. They're worried about investors, and they're worried about the economy. 
it'd be easy to just plug this data into a, into a computer and, and get it to spit out a yes or a no, do we hike or do we not? But they don't do that, um, obviously, for reasons that a lot of these things are hard to measure and, and deal with emotions and sentimentality. But to go back to what I said at the beginning, I mean, this is getting so heated, I feel like no matter what they do, they're going to catch flack from one side or the other. So They're going to piss half the world <laughs> off. There's just no question about it, Chris. Isn't that every, really it. every decision the Fed makes, or any politician makes? I mean, there's, and, and then there's the fi- always haters. The final that's, question, that's though, is what's the individual investor to do? And I, I say, even though we just spent a number of nice minutes talking about it, you really can't focus on it too much, especially for the long-term investor, if you own good companies that you're happy with for the long term. All right, we will look for that next week. But earlier this week, Apple held an event to unveil their latest set of gadgets, including Apple TV, the iPad Pro, and upgrades on the iPhone 6. Anything really stand out to you, Matt? Well, nothing really stood out to me. But you know, if this was any other company that came out with all of these new products and innovations, we'd say, wow, this is, this is pretty incredible. But Apple has set such a high bar that it just, an announcement like this, even though I think there's some really great innovations here. I think the 3D touch aspect on the new iPhones really, I mean, that gives them a lot of different versatility in terms of how you can, pr- how hard you can press on that phone to do different things. I think the set top box, uh, you know, is a real competitor to the Roku box or, or a lot of the gaming consoles out there. Uh, I, and finally, I put iPad Pro. That might be for me the biggest dud in the lineup, just because I think it's for most people, it's still such a too too big of a leap from the laptop. To a tablet, and we saw we've tried we've seen Microsoft try this. I don't know how successful they're being. Probably by the numbers, not very successful. And so there's a lot to there's a lot to worry about there. But I say you know it's, all, it's still all about the iPhone. This is 60% of Apple's revenue. I think the iPhone 6s and 6s Plus, it's not really going to be enough probably for someone who has an iPhone 6 to upgrade. But someone who has an iPhone 5 or hasn't upgraded their phone in a while, definitely, and that's important to Apple. Well, and Jason, the majority of people who have an iPhone. Uh, don't have an iPhone six, so they've got an installed base. That I've got an upgrade. iPhone six, Chris. Not, <laughs> well, not I don't. See, I don't. I have an iPhone five, and I, yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, to, yeah. Ready and, and I think you're right there. Exactly. And that I think it's important for people to remember this really is still a phone story. So for all the cool stuff out there, I mean, iPad. I tend to agree with you there. It's it's really tablets in general have just not quite been able to clear that hurdle of becoming a production device. I know in this sort of happy world we want to say that they can be, but they're really just not yet. At least you know for the majority of people out there, they they're just consumption devices. They're just new TVs, really. Uh, and, you know, Apple obviously commands a very big premium on those. I think the thing that just kind of took me back the most is I was really kind of uninspired by this. And when you think about all of the work that they put into these things, um, I, I, I really wanted to learn more about Apple TV and kind of their pursuit there. I think you know Apple Music has been really getting lambasted here uh, lately. I want to hear how they're going to make that better, and we didn't really get too much insight well, into any of this. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing about the TV that I think is really compelling to me is that it's it's really kind of open for you know for developers to develop apps for it. I think if as long as they've created a versatile enough platform, and I don't know enough about it, but it it could be something that evolves into a really really technology advanced way to use your TV. What do we think about the new installment? You can kind of rent your your phone on a monthly basis. Numbers look pretty high. Looks expensive to me. Do we think that gets any traction? I, I'm kind of I think for someone doubtful. who right. I mean, I think for someone who's not interested in the the contract offers, you know, the two year contract offers, and and can't pay five or six hundred dollars for a phone, I think that I think that's a great option. You do. Shares of Lululemon Athletica falling more than 15% this week. Help me out here, Jason. I mean, second quarter sales were up 16%. They had positive same-store sales for the first time in two years. This looked like a pretty good quarter. It, you know, it wasn't a bad quarter. Perhaps it was a bit of a hasty reaction from the market. But I mean, this is 
this is still a retailer, and and you know retail is very difficult. The big the big concern there with with Lululemon, and it's something we've been you know paying attention to for years now, is really the margin line there, and they are losing any uh, sort of luster they had with that brand to be able to command premium pricing uh, back when they were I guess maybe a bit more new to the market, and so we saw gross margin really really. Take it, take a hit. I mean, somewhere in the neighborhood of four percentage points, uh, because they're just depending more on, uh, you know, what they like to call investments in pricing. Really, all that is is just you know selling things for cheaper and you know offering sort of promotions and whatnot. Um, and so I think that when you look forward and you kind of wonder where where the growth really is, because they still haven't really convinced us that they can make that leap into men's apparel and and other things than just sort of that nascent or that sort of niche uh, yoga gear. Uh, you know, that's the concern. I mean. I mean, it's it's a good company with a good brand, and I'm I'm happy to give Laurent Potdevin, the CEO who took over after Chip Wilson, really kind of almost you know took that company down. Uh, I'm going to give him a pass there as he's kind of turning this thing around. But but again, I mean, I think you, the market's forward looking, and that's really what it's looking at now is where is the opportunity going forward for these guys? And add them to the list of retailers who continue to have inventory problems oh, as yeah. a result of what's going on with the West Coast. And that's just port. yeah, and, and I mean, you even see. They've got a tremendous buildup in inventory as well, and whenever you see that big buildup in inventory, not really in line with sales growth, you can look for more discounts to come. And I think that's just going to indicate more margin pressures, and I think that's got investors spooked. Dave and Buster's Entertainment is the restaurant chain that combines playing games and watching sports with food and alcohol. <laughs> Second quarter results could hardly have been better, Ron. I mean, profits higher than expected. They raised guidance. Yeah, things are really looking up, and it hasn't hasn't always been the case with this company. It's an interesting story. It went private back in two thousand six for three hundred seventy five million, then sold itself, still private for five seventy five hundred seventy million. Now we're at one point seven billion market cap. And the company's kind of knocking the cover off the ball with you know uh, comps of 11%, comps sales of 11% in the last quarter. So people really liking the combination of the food and the gaming. I've been there, I don't know, dozens <laughs> and dozens of times with my kids, spending ridiculous amounts of money for prizes that I could have bought at like the dollar store. So it's a business model that it, if it works, it works. I'm just floored by that. Yeah, yeah, I am too. I just think the comps of 11%. I mean, this is not an, a new concept, and I just feel like is there something driving? Suddenly driving, you know, the Gross family to Dave and Buster. <laughs> we haven't been for a while now that the kids are older, but but if you think about what this business offers, keep in mind this is happening against the backdrop of what is largely a very healthy economy here in the U.S. and has sure. been for years. This is almost the definition of discretionary spending at this place. Absolutely. So uh, it, it yeah. seems like when you see the stock hitting an all-time high, all-time high, only 77 stores let's remember at a 1.7 billion market cap. They think they can get to 200 in North America alone. So there is growth ahead as long as these numbers continue. I'm, say, I'm less floored by the performance and more floored by the fact that Ron Gross <laughs> just died in the whole kids, value uh, guy. My son especially. Just carting his it. kids over there <laughs> and just dropping a bunch of coin on like You never needed to stuff. entertain your kids on a weekend. <laughs> I sure have. (laughs) Up next, if you like hot soup but hate the inconvenience of opening a can, we have got some really good news. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Strong second quarter for grocery chain Kroger. 
profits higher than expected, and they raised guidance, Jason. That is the nice one-two punch we like to see. That's the one-two punch, and the market tends to reward it. Uh, you know, we do a lot of talking about Whole Foods here, and it struck me earlier that I mean, we do a lot of talking about Whole Foods. But if you go back and look at the last five years here, I mean, investors, the bet was on Kroger right there. I mean, investors have won handily with Kroger. It's not even close. And I think that makes sense, though, because this is a this is a market, this is a business where scale is crucial. When you have that scale, you can really control costs and you can take advantage of being able to do that. And Kroger is far larger than the Whole Foods at this point. I think the acquisition of Harris Teeter was a very shrewd one. I think that opens them up to a a consumer base that that you know might choose Whole Foods otherwise, um, and you know they they foresee comps for the for the full year here somewhere between four and five percent. Uh, that's 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 strong. And I mean, speaking from the perspective of having gone to Kroger, I mean, there's one down by our house in Georgia. They are nice. They've they've really uh, come a long way, and so uh, I, I expect to see uh, see continued good things. Yeah, I want to go back to the Harris Teeter acquisition for a moment because I think it is worth pointing out that. Those are tough to pull off uh, in this industry, and there were some people at the time wondering whether or not that was actually going to work. So, I mean, they, they they deserve a victory lap on that one. Sure, absolutely. And I think the biggest question when that when that deal was first announced was, well, what are they going to do with the branding? Is this going to change anything? And really, ultimately, it has changed nothing whatsoever. You go into a Harris Teeter today; it's the same one that was two years ago. Uh, they really just rolled that you know concept into sort of their. You know, holding sort of structure, so to speak, and it's just been a nice uh, increment. It is driver. a good addition. I always think that Paris Teeter they kind of split the difference between like a Whole Foods yeah. and kind of your everyday grocery store um, really with higher quality produce, higher quality meats, some organic stuff in there. Um, and I think they probably more than than most do a really great job. Agreed. Curra Green Mountain is best known for single serve pods of coffee and tea. This week, the company unveiled single serve pods of soup. Available in homestyle chicken noodle and Southwest style chicken noodle, and hazelnut. <laughs> well, I guess if you don't clean out the coffee, but I, I don't get you, it. You're a Keurig owner. I'm, I'm, Are a, you? I, I'm a daily user of Keurig, but I, I'm sorry, Keurig, I, I don't get it. Um, there's many ways to get soup very quickly nowadays, from cans to instant. Just add hot water. In fact, you could pour, use the Keurig to just add the hot water. You don't actually need the K cup. Uh, I don't see it. Um, Keurig needs something to help it. Stock's down 54% this year. Since the release of the Keurig 2.0, the company's really been taking it on the chin. They're looking for things um, to take that machine in other directions, other than coffee, soup being one of those directions. Uh, I don't see it. I got an idea. How about a $300 cold beverage machine? That (laughs) ought to do it, right? So, how much do they need this to be a hit? I mean, you look at their latest quarter, revenue was down more than 8%. I mean, this seems unlike what we were talking about earlier with Apple, and I get that it's a completely different business, but Apple can afford to take some chances here. This, based on what you just said, it sounds like Keurig. This isn't just like a little add-on that maybe has some nice financial benefits. It sounds like they need this to be a hit. They need it to be a hit, but it's going to be an uphill battle, especially with just it, you know the trial of two soups right now, which I can't imagine is going to go well. The company's cutting their workforce by five percent, doing what they can to cut expenses while they try to kind of turn this around. Ever since the K Cup patent expired in 2012, it's been an uphill battle. I just uh, yeah, it, this is a company I think had a great pl- it still does have has a great platform to do hot. 
beverages, mostly, you know, coffee. And I just I just think at some point management decide, hey, we've got this great thing. People like using it. We can do all kinds of stuff with this machine. And I just it's it's the biggest example of diversification is a term we use that I've seen recently. It's gonna be a great case study one day. And yeah. I think you came up with the title for it right there, a trial of two soups. Hey. Ah, <laughs> look at that. Will it you was at the least, best of time. Will you I, I know you're not interested. <laughs> But will you at least commit to just testing it just once, just for, for us? this show? I will gladly <laughs> bring it in. It. Bring it in. Hey. Selfless efforts. The NFL season kicks off this weekend, and that means big business not just for the league and TV networks. It also means big business for the growing industry of fantasy football. Uh, companies like CBS and Yahoo are in on this, but it's also spawned standalone businesses like FanDuel and DraftKings, each of whom has raised more than $350 million in venture financing, Maddie. Uh, they're not public companies yet, but when I see that kind of money being thrown, it tells me that they're probably going to be public in the next year or two. I think so. This is, If you had any doubt, fantasy sports is big business. I came across some data here from the Fantasy Sports Trade Association. Didn't even know there was a fantasy <laughs> sports trade association. I can't believe you did research. <laughs> well, I, yeah. But, and so, 56 million people in North America will play fantasy sports this year. Of course, the majority of that's going to be betting on uh, or playing fantasy uh, NFL sports. Um, but that's up from $12 million in 2005, and an estimated $5 billion is going to be spent wow. on fantasy games. I mean, this is, it's, it's a huge business. And so, yeah, you mentioned FanDuel uh, and DraftKings. I, I can't watch sports now. It seems like every other commercial is a fantasy sports for, you know, commercial for one of these guys. And each, each worth now well over a billion dollars based on the recent funding rounds. I mean, and there are big companies getting into this. Uh, uh, Fox Sports is into it. Disney's into it. Comcast. The New England Patriots have invest- made an investment. Yeah, I mean that Walt Disney deal with was it DraftKings? I mean they didn't they didn't plunk I think two hundred fifty million dollars in there, but they got a an advertising deal so that DraftKings will be advertising on ESPN properties come two thousand and sixteen. They'll be exclusive in twenty sixteen. And and as a as a consumer, I mean it's a really attractive little setup there because you can go in there and play. You know, maybe you spend five dollars a week doing it, so you're not breaking the bank or anything, but you're having fun. And again, like Matty said, it, it just it creates that interest to where now you're not just focused on your team; you're focusing on every game because you've got a player involved. You know, I wonder how much of, of the, the money you talked about, which is big big numbers, really is is privately changing hands between you and me who are in a fantasy league together. We both put in fifty dollars. Does that number include that? And how does a business capture any of that money? That's that's a great question. I think that is probably the overall transaction volume. And of course, DraftKings and FanDuel are taking a small piece of that. Right. So that most of that money is going into the winning pool that you can ultimately win from whatever league or whatever game you're playing. So I, I know we've all done fantasy football. Let's bring in our man Steve Broder from the other side of the glass. Uh, Steve, if you had the number one pick in a fantasy football draft, uh, who do you think you'd take? I don't even know what fantasy football is. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I have no idea. It sounds really dorky. Would you like to enter a league you with just, us? Yes. No, I don't. I, I don't know anything about football. But good luck. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. All right, guys. Thanks for being here. We'll see you later in the show. Coming up after the break, we will bask in television's warm, glowing, warming glow with TV writer Andy Greenwald. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. We've talked for years on this show about how one of the most interesting business battles out there is the battle for the living room. And at the heart of that battle is television. Andy Greenwald covers the TV industry for Grantland, and he joins me now from New York City. Andy, thanks for being here. 
Oh, thanks for inviting me, Chris. Uh, let me start with something from a few weeks ago. The Television Critics Association press tour was going on. You have the major broadcast and cable networks making their presentations. And John Landgraf, who's the CEO of FX, raised more than a few eyebrows when he said point blank, there is simply too much television. Is he right about that? I mean, I feel that way because I'm a middle-aged man with kids, and so I hear all the time about great shows that I just can't really seem to find the time to watch. But here's the head of a network saying it. Yeah, can I equivocate like a CEO and say I think he's not wrong? (laughs) Um, You know, John, I think, is a very, very wise guy about the industry, and he generally has very good taste about television. And I think he's talking about this from a number of different uh, angles. I think... Purely from a creative standpoint, you know, to make a television show and to make a good one requires an enormous amount of talent on all sides of the ball. You know, you need to have the best possible actors, the best possible writers, the best possible production crew. And that is a finite number of people. And as more and more networks and services get into the field, that number is getting stretched pretty thin. So I think he's starting to feel it from from his end. I think he's also thinking just about in terms of what is a rational um, expectation of what audiences can watch, because we've entered into an era where television now demands completism. You know, you can't just dabble like you used to be able to do with 22 unserialized episodes of a TV show. Now, in order to commit to a show, you're committing anywhere from 8 to 10 or 13 hours of your time. You don't just watch one, you watch them all. And generally, as he's tried to launch new dramas over the past few years, and one that I was particularly fond of fell prey to this, a show called The Bridge, if you don't hook them in those first two hours, they're pretty much gone. And you know the, the, the economics of TV is not yet built to support discovering it late, no matter what the, the, the Netflix acolytes will have you believe. The opposite argument against what, what John Landgraf is saying, I think has been articulated pretty well by um, a number of uh, TV producers. In the New York Times article about it, Marty Noxon, who produced a show called Unreal that got a lot of good buzz this summer on Lifetime, expressed it very well, saying, well, it's one thing to say that there's too much TV, but let's also look back at what kind of TV we had before there was too much TV. And it was very unrepresentative of the country as a whole. Would a show like Amazon's Transparent, which is just um, brilliant and subtle and wise and smart and also covering an issue that generally wasn't covered by mainstream television just a few years ago, would that have found a way onto the air without this glut of uh, peak TV, as he's calling it? So it, it, it's a pretty, it's a multi-nuanced argument, although as a professional critic who has to watch all of it, I'm pretty sympathetic to it. Well, and one of my thoughts was, I don't think John Landgraf is making a comment like that if a ton of people are watching his network. As you said, he's a smart guy, but there's a, a, a slightly self-serving edge to that, as there probably should be, because he's the CEO of the network. Yes, it's true. Although I would say that FX is doing very well under his tenure, but I think that he's getting frustrated when the shows that he's passionate about can't get an audience, and, and not only that, they can't through the can't cut through the clutter or the noise to even get the attention that's required these days to get people watching. You know, um, he's he's done a good job launching shows that he's passionate about, but then he can't control it once they're they've launched. And as a as a good CEO, which probably means a controlling CEO, that's got to be frustrating. If it's a little bit tougher on the business side of the equation for television, is this a golden era for the creative people, for the showrunners? Because it seems like. They have so many more options as opposed to when I was a kid, you basically had ABC, CBS, NBC, and that was it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been an absolute explosion of, of talent and opportunity over the last few years. Um, you know, famously, this, this, if you want to call it a golden age, was kicked off when AMC 
um, went out on a limb and, and got into script in a big way with Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And both of those scripts are great examples of projects that were basically tucked away in the desk drawers of their creators. Matthew Weiner and Vince Gilligan had worked on TV for over a decade um, on shows that you know and shows that you may not like very much, everything from The Sopranos to a comedy called Becker. Um, these were the scripts that they wrote for themselves to get people's attention and you know to, to sort of show what they could do. The thought of anyone making them, well, that was another story. All of a sudden, you had a network that had nothing to lose and was willing to take a chance on this material. Now, if you can't get it, if you can't sell your script to HBO, well, there are you know three dozen other opportunities as you go down the food chain. Someone is probably going to make your show, um, whether they will make it to the production levels that it requires or get it to the audience that it needs. That's another story. Let's go back to the business side. When you look at broadcast networks, basic cable networks, and premium cable networks like HBO. Who's in the driver's seat in terms of making money? There's no question it's the premium networks. Um, networks like HBO and Showtime have the dream scenario. They are subscription services where audiences pay them directly to get what they want, and it's you know it basically cuts out the middleman. And now, as these networks, and particularly thinking of HBO and Showtime again, who are going what what the industry term is called uh, over the top. HBO Now is a service where you no longer need to have a cable subscription. You just need to pay a certain amount of money per month, and then you can get access to it via, you know, online or via your Roku or Apple TV. Um, they've cut out the middleman completely. Um, you know, in the sense, they are in the driver's seat going forward in the same way that a company like Apple is, and that it's top-down. You know, they, they make the shows, they own the shows, they have a library of the shows, and they can now sell it directly to the consumer. That's the best possible scenario, I think, for anyone to be in. As you go down the, the network food chain, um, it gets a little bit murkier. Basic cable channels, um, you know, the ones that come bundled with your cable bill, whether you want them or not, are in a little bit of a different scenario. One of the reasons why they've all gotten into scripted TV in a big way over the last few years is to make them necessary. Because the carriage fees, you know, and that's the fee that basically you're paying for Food Network and uh, AMC and you know, channels I probably haven't even heard of, whether you want them or watch them or not. They get money from every cable subscriber regardless, and that's called a carriage fee. Those <clears throat> have basically kept all these companies afloat for a very long time. As they saw the writing on the wall, as we started to head towards an over-the-top era, these, co- these channels suddenly realized they needed to have a reason for you to know them. So they all got into scripted in a big way. Whether they've been able to build up that audience affection, build up that library of, of content in order to themselves go over the top is another question. How much does international distribution matter for networks, is it the same level for all of them, or is it more important for certain networks as opposed to others? I think it depends. Um, international financing, as it is with film as well, is more important than it's ever been. Um, but there are a lot of different ways that you can make it work, and the economics for every, not just every network, every show, I think, is is different. One way you can see that it's affected the industry is the push towards dramas on the broadcast networks, and the reason for that is because sitcoms, as much as we love them, don't travel very well. The jokes are generally regional or or specific. So if you have a show, for example, like The Office, which was a huge hit here, the format of The Office was sold internationally. There was a French office and an Israeli office, and of course, you know, diehard fans know originally it was a UK show. Um, But our version of The Office doesn't travel as well. Whereas a show like Hawaii Five-O on CBS, it's domestic ratings almost are irrelevant because the show is so wildly popular everywhere around the world because (laughs) You know what's more, what, what can what translates better than um, you know sunshine and cops and robbers that it'll pay for itself no matter what it's doing here at home. 
Isn't that why Baywatch was such a huge hit? I mean, what, at one time, wasn't Baywatch the number one watch show on the planet? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Some things just export better than others. Um, but sometimes it benefits everyone. There was a, NBC had a really amazing show for three years called Hannibal, you know, based on the, the Thomas Harris novels and Hannibal Lecter mythology. And uh, that was a co-production with Gaumont International. And it was never quite clear how much NBC was paying or who was paying for what, but it was like nothing else on TV, and it was beautiful while it lasted, although this year NBC did finally pull the plug. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Andy Greenwald, TV writer for Grantland. Uh, Grantland is owned by ESPN, so I realize I'm putting you in a little bit of a spot with this next question. But some analysts have looked at the steady unfettered rise in the cost of live sports programming, and they see a bubble that is getting ready to burst. Do you think that is the case? And if so, what does the aftermath look like? I, you know, For the reasons you mentioned, and also just because of my general purview, I don't have the specific information in front of me to, to, you know, to, to, discuss, this, to discuss it with any uh, level of expertise. But I would say that just having paid attention to television to the degree that I have over the last few years, I don't know if live television events are overvalued yet. Um, you know, as we've moved towards not just a DVR era, but basically an on-demand era where people just assume their shows will be available to them at any time, we've lost the sort of the, the, the communal show, the water cooler show, and award shows and sports have been the only things that have really seemed immune to the general decline in ratings across the board. Uh, I'll be curious to see what the Emmy Awards do uh, later this month for the same reason, because I think that they've I think interest in watching the Emmys live has weirdly gone up because people miss that collective experience. Similarly, you know, I, I, I wouldn't bet against sports ratings for that, for that same reason. I know he's been on the air for less than a week, but uh, do you have an early reaction to how Stephen Colbert is doing? Uh, I've only watched the, his first show, and I have to say it was a lot bumpier than I Im- would have imagined. And I guess in retrospect, it's pretty clear to see why. Um, you know, he is a, he's a performing genius and performed a character for nine years on a very small set. Seeing him without the character made him seem a little bit small, I have to say, because there are all the things that are required to do this job, to host a nightly talk show, which, by the way, is an insane and anachronistic job that I'm not even sure if we as a country need anymore, requires a, a, a bigness of character and a voice and a personality to fill the silences, you know, to, to generate content out of nothing, out of bad interviews or, or, or jokes that die on the vine. And I feel, in the early going, that seemed to be more of a struggle for him than I would have expected. But again, I think he's a brilliant performer and a very smart guy, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him fix it by, I don't know, this time next week. CBS shareholders have to be pretty happy, though, because now that CBS owns The Late Show, whereas David Letterman owned it before, CBS is going to be making a lot more money in late night. Yeah, and having Colbert and hiring him as quickly as they did was a very, very smart move for CBS and for its president, Les Moonves, because... He smartly recognized that there was no way to directly compete with Jimmy Fallon, who has you know, changed the dynamic of that time slot and pretty much owned the ratings ever since he took it over from Leno. I think hiring another young person who is going to be singing and dancing would not have been smart. But if you give people an alternative, especially the people who had been happily watching Letterman, and the average age of the 1130 audience is creeping up there, um, I think that having Colbert as, a, as a, a counterweight, even if his ratings never quite reach Fallon's, I think everyone at CBS is going to be very happy with it. I know that the way the television landscape has changed, particularly over the last decade or so, means that the new television series in the fall, that's not quite 
the thing that it used to be. That being said, there are a bunch of new shows being launched by various networks this fall. Do you have one or two that you're particularly interested in? I have to tell you, this has been the most dispiriting network fall in, in my in my recent experience. It does seem like they've tried everything over the last few years and are really shrugging. Um, they can't quite seem to figure out what audiences want, or at least what they want in, in big numbers. And so, you know, you look at the comedies, and there there are things that wouldn't have been out of place ten or even twenty years ago. Um, Doctor Ken on ABC is a you know family sitcom built around a comedian. Um, the Muppets are back. Uh, there's a show on NBC called. Um, uh, it used to be called People Are Talking. I think they just changed the title to, some, to something involving the truth. And it's about how, uh, you know, it's like the old cliche about the stand-up comedian act. White people talk like this and black people talk like this. It's, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not very inspiring. Um, I think Fox is taking a big swing with something like Scream Queens, trying to bring Ryan Murphy, the guy responsible for American Horror Story and Glee, bring his more out-there aesthetic to a broader audience. Um, I think, uh, you know, CBS is trying to age down its audience a little bit by getting into the superhero game with Supergirl. NBC, weirdly, it seems the smartest to me because they're just playing it safe. Every one of their shows basically looks the same, and it looks like The Blacklist, a sort of glossy action thriller which may or may not include Wesley Snipes. Since you mentioned it, I have to ask this last question, and then I'll let you go, because on behalf of my colleague Ron Gross, who is a huge fan of Superman, do you have any sense of how good or bad the CBS uh, fall series Supergirl may be? You know, it's, you're talking to me about a day before I'm going to commit to actually sitting down and watching <laughs> the thing, but I, 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 I actually don't know, because judging from the trailer, uh, which was pretty grim when it was leaked a few months ago, I was feeling pretty disappointed about it, because it seemed CBS's attempt to basically not make a superhero show, but make an ABC show, sort of a, 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 a vaguely touchy-feely um, you know, uh, rom-com with a little bit more of action-y stakes. People who I know who work in the industry have now seen the pilot and say, you know what, it's not half bad. So we'll see. The CBS does know how to make a competent drama. So if they can, if they can bring their magic to this and, you know, sprinkle a little, I guess it would be anti-kryptonite in this case, but we'll see. You can follow him on Twitter or better yet, click over to grantland.com and read his stuff. He's one of the best when it comes to writing about television. Andy Greenwald, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Television, say you love me. Up next, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hillen. Joining me in studio once again, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Time once again for the stocks on our radar, and we will bring in our man from the other side of the glass, Steve Broido, to hit you with a question. Uh, Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Uh, well, Steve and Chris, I have a new deep value radar stock, not a recommendation, a radar stock. Um, it's a $600 million company, Movado, M-O-V. Most people, I'm sure, have heard of it. It's the watch company that um, makes watches under the Movado, Coach, Hugo Boss, Juicy, Tommy Hilfiger brand names, among others. Uh, stock got absolutely slammed in the second half of 2014. A weak retail environment, weak demand for watches overall. People just aren't wearing them, um, let's face it. Um, but they put a plan in place. They raised selected prices. They cut costs. They bought back stock. Things really have turned the corner now. Stock has rebounded off its 52-week low. But there still could be a lot of room to run on this stock if they can put up growth. Really strong balance sheet. 
what's the question for me is, is there growth to be had, especially in this age of smartwatches? Steve, question about Movado? Does Movado release a smartwatch in the next 10 years? Uh, within the next probably two years, they call it a connected watch, and it is definitely um, coming, whether it's successful or not, I'm not sure. But my question for you, uh, Mr. Broido, is do you own a watch, and if so, do you wear a watch? I do own a watch, and I do wear a watch. Very nice. Any chance you're going to upgrade to a Movado? I don't think so. <laughs> but maybe. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week? Sure thing. Uh, you know, I've been able to play golf like twice in the last month, which for me is a lot. I don't get a chance to play a whole heck of a lot. And this kind of got me back to looking at a company uh, called Club Corp Holdings. Ticker is MYCC. And I've, I've said before, this is the only golf investment I would ever actually consider because these guys aren't making golf equipment. These are the guys that own the golf courses, the clubs. And so while golf may be facing some headwinds and really growing the number of players of the game. I think that actually, you know, Club Corp is compelling from the from the sense that it's the market leader in the number of properties it owns. It's it's the biggest operator out there. Scale is a big advantage here where they can really actually help control the costs, bring the cost down of being a member of a facility and make that actually a bit more of an attractive sort of aspirational goal for many. They just recently acquired Sequoia Golf, which uh, gives it now 204 clubs in total. Uh, more than 430,000 members uh, worldwide. Uh, just, just an interesting situation there. They get m- membership fees, you know, every month, which I, I like that recurring revenue there. And, and you know, it's interesting when you look at the profitability of the company because of all the property and equipment they use. They have a lot of depreciation and amortization on the the income statement, which sort of I think makes them not seem as profitable as they really are. Uh, they do bring in a lot of a lot of free cash flow. A very interesting uh, investment. I'm going to go back and do a little bit more research on it. Steve, question about Club Corp. What happens with a water shortage like we're seeing in California? That's an interesting like question there. And actually, what we're seeing, the USGA is spearheading a movement to where uh, the golf courses are actually using less and less water. They're they're less concerned with maintaining sort of the off the fairway appearances of golf courses, uh, so that they don't have to to consume as much water. Because when those water shortages come into play, uh, golf courses certainly uh, are not immune. Maddie, what are you looking at? I can't take my eyes off GoPro. Uh, ticker is GPRO. <laughs> it's a company we just uh, recently added to our watch list and million dollar portfolio. It has been beaten down almost close to its IPO price uh, from over a year ago, uh, really because of uh, some short guidance by uh, Amberella, which is a chipmaker supplier to GoPro. But of course, this is the you know the action sports camera founded by Nick Woodman ten years ago. Um, he owns thirty percent of shares. Uh, the latest quarter, the sales were up seventy one percent. Uh, free cash flow hit fifty million. I mean, this is a company that's not only profitable, but growing by leaps and bounds. The GoPro brand is really spreading to all different kinds of areas um, of sports and the market. I just I'm really excited about the company. Steve, is there a storage opportunity with GoPro? Some of the footage that stuff creates gets very very large. Right. Well, yeah. GoPro has some options, some cloud based options where you can store with them, or you can use other cloud services. But it, they make it really seamless from taking the you know capturing the the, the video and and storing it, editing it, all that kind of stuff. Steve, you got GoPro, Movado, Club Corp. Any of those stocks piquing your interest? Maybe something you want to add to your watch list? I own Amberella, so I'm thinking GoPro looks kind of promising right All now. All right. Steve, Fixed. Steve, showing his data knowledge with the uh, the question about storage. Steve, do you play golf? No, not at all. I neglected to ask my Steve Broder question. I'm going to get a little bit more personal here, Steve. How does it feel getting your first child into school, right? Just started preschool, He did. Yeah, it feels great. He's in preschool. It feels very, very good. Boy, that's a big move in the right direction, buddy. All right, guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer, Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.